You really didn't think I was gonna let a whole year go by before posting another episode. Wait, did you? Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, this is Rob. And it's been another long absence between episodes here, another long gap. Unintentionally, I must say, as usual. I think it's just the convalescence of uh, the holiday season and everything that that entails um, just ended up putting pushing the podcast on the back burner, and, and then it just became a uh, pile-on of all the films that I've been watching, trying to catch up with all the uh, award contenders and such, that, uh, you know, it just started to feel overwhelming. So before we enter 2018, I wanted to be sure to have... One more episode this year to essentially clear the decks as far as film reviews and um, topics that um, would have should have really been the center central focus of uh, of uh, individual episodes and just kind of do a more rapid fire approach to some of the films that I've seen in the last month or so since uh, since Justice League basically um, going forward I'm trying to come up with a uh, a new approach to the podcast a little bit uh, that will take a little bit of a different... I mean, the whole point here of this show is the world of film from a fresh angle. So I, I'm trying to take a, a little bit of a different perspective, not necessarily pump out reviews every week. Um, you know, there's a new release, we're going to talk about it, because I've been doing that, uh, and it feels like it's sort of creatively stale on my end. And it's also in tandem with the fact that I want to be doing more written reviews on CrookedTable.com. Once again, it's been a long time since I've really done that on a regular basis and uh, get back into video content. So it's also a little bit about spreading the wealth of topics and uh, discussion points across those three, uh, those three, you know, different media. And for this episode, it's just like I said about. Talk, get, spreading my, sharing my thoughts about big notable films that have come out that I've seen, and um, you know that way we can go into the new year. And I have already put on record my thoughts on uh, a myriad of films that are currently being discussed in uh, the awards conversation and such. Actually, this this episode, the there are five films that I want to be talking about, and uh, I I'm think it's a pretty good chance they're all going to be at least nominated, if not win, Academy Awards uh, next year when uh, when that day does come. So we're going to be talking about Coco, the new Disney Pixar film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, from Martin McDonough, the director of uh, Seven Psychopaths and In Bruges, both films I enjoyed, The Disaster Artist, the story behind the cult classic The Room, directed by uh, James Franco, The Disaster Artist, not The Room. Uh, Lady Bird from Greta Gerwig, and of course Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. So, uh, like I said, we're just going to be basically running through those. I had mentioned last episode that I was going to do a Coco review, so that's still going to be a part of this, and we'll get to that first. And I was supposed to do a holiday movie preview, um, basically counting down the the six. Let's talk about six uh, films that I was most looking forward to seeing from Thanksgiving to Christmas, basically, essentially the holiday season. Those uh, those were, I feel like I should run through those really fast, 
just uh, for those of you who are listening to these episodes sequentially and want to know what I was going to say. I'm not going to get into in-depth about it. I'm not even going to put the theme music. But Six was going to be all the money in the world. The, of course, Ridley Scott-directed film that was going to have Kevin Spacey as J. Paul Getty and was recast with Christopher Plummer, who has since earned a Golden Globe nomination for that role and is getting critical raves and probably get nominated for an Oscar for that as well. Number five, The Post from Steven Spielberg, of course, about the Pentagon Papers with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Um, it, I don't know if this is going to go all the way. There was The buzz seems to go pretty pretty positive on this one. I kind of don't I don't think we're going to have another best picture winner that's so heavily involved with journalism so soon after Spotlight, but I'm as a, you know, writer and a journalist, that's interests me and with that cast, that director, of course, uh, definitely curious to see how that that one's going to uh, connect with me personally. Number 4, The Shape of Water from Guillermo del Toro. I've been a longtime fan of his. I have most of his movies on DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth being my favorite, and this seems the closest in line with the tone and sort of aesthetics of Pan's Labyrinth as far as the whole dark fairy tale thing. I really like Sally Hawkins and Michael Shannon and Michael Stuhlbarg and Richard Jenkins, so I'm really excited to see this one. Still hasn't really come to my city yet, and I haven't really been able to make it to screeners because, you know, with a toddler at home, it, it makes things a little more complicated. Um, moving into number three, Disaster Artist which we're going to talk about later in this episode. James Franco playing Tommy Wiseau, director, writer, star, producer of The Room. And um, number two, Molly's Game, the directorial debut of Academy Award-winning screenwriter Aaron Sorkin with Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, uh, based on the real-life story of the uh, sort of high-stakes poker game that she ran and then got busted by the uh, feds for dealing with. And, of course, number one, which I was most excited to see, and should be no surprise to all of you, Star Wars The Last Jedi, also which we'll be talking about in here. So, only two of those six that I've seen thus far. I'm really looking forward to those other four. A couple of them are playing here in my area, so I will probably get to see uh, either All the Money in the World or Molly's Game um, in the coming few days. Uh, Probably going to lean towards Molly's Game since I am a little more excited to see that, as the countdown implies. So, moving on. We're going to go into our first of five mini-reviews here um, with the new Disney Pixar film, Coco. So this one is uh, centers on a young boy named Miguel, voiced by Anthony Gonzalez, who wants to be a musician. His family is forbidding him to pursue a career in that um, because his great-grandfather, this is not much of a spoiler, this is in the first few minutes of the movie, his great-grandfather basically left his wife and young daughter to uh, to pursue a career in music and that ultimately leads miguel into an adventure in the land of the dead it's heavily deals with dia de los muertos um the mexican holiday of course and uh it's a now this is another winner from pixar basically we have uh, lush visuals we have um a very heartfelt poignant storytelling but more so we have a a culture demonstrated uh, a, a culture involved so heavily in a story that we don't really see very often. I mean, yes, Guillermo del Toro did produce The Book of Life a few years ago, and that has similar themes and such going on. But, um, you know, this film really connected with me in a, in a very deep way. I'm not Mexican, but half I'm half Cuban on my dad's side. So certain bits of this did hit me um in that way the music here is is lovely uh as far as i know i'm 
pretty sure this is the first full-on musical from Pixar. And, uh, you know, I just actually just got the soundtrack recently. I think that the film is destined to win not only Best Animated Feature, but also Best Original Song for Remember Me, which still makes me tear up every time I hear it. This is the, probably the only film this year that I've seen that I got not um, not moved by where I got a little teary-eyed. This is the one where I was even telling Kai earlier today. This was the one where I got, like, ugly cried <laughs> in the middle of the movie, like, a couple of times. Uh, it just It's very powerful themes as far as choosing between your art and family and the relationship between those two. Do you have to choose one or the over the other? How can they feed into each other? So uh, I really love this film. It's definitely Pixar's best since at least Inside Out, if not Toy Story 3. It's right around the same level as Inside Out for me. So I gave that a 4.5 out of 5. That was Coco. Definitely see if you haven't yet. It's probably still playing somewhere in some uh, cities around the, the country. So definitely check that out. Moving into three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, this one is actually interesting because I was familiar with this from a while ago. I actually remember writing stories, uh, news stories about you know the announcement of this film and, and the casting of it and all that as it was happening when I was writing for uh, Screen Rant on a more regular basis doing news stories. And um, so it's this third film, I think it's the third, third major film from Martin McDonough. Um, writer-director of, as I mentioned, In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. This one stars Frances McDormand as a uh, mother whose daughter was raped and murdered, and uh, she takes out three billboards in this small town, uh, calling out the local sheriff and wa asking why uh, her daughter hasn't, you know, her daughter's killer hasn't been brought to justice. And from there, it spirals into this whole uh, complex, uh, morally complex tale of revenge and obsession and and, you know, um, justice and vengeance and what, uh, how far is too far to go to, um, to right, to, to, in your mind, right or wrong. Um, the highlight here is, well, the script is really strong, of course, because Martin McDonough is pretty, he's a pretty successful, um, filmmaker as far as writing, the writing perspective of things. And of course, Frances McDormand here, Oscar winner. Um, delivers a tour de force performance. She's got this one great scene where she's sort of um, has a monologue with a priest. If you've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the, to me, the real standout here, and you know, it I feels like this might be his year, is Sam Rockwell as the second in command to well, it's sort of the a cop that's it's um, a very complicated uh, history with the law, which is ironic. And um, he, he's, his character has a lot of people sort of split down the middle as far as whether they like this, the way this film goes or whether, you know, it's, it's sort of morally reprehensible. Uh, my thing is I understand where they're coming from and I was never 100% uh, on board for this character's perspective on things because he's kind of a despicable human being. But um, I, I like the fact that the film raises those questions and raises the, that discussion is, is kind of... Um, happening surrounding three billboards i think that's kind of the point and the film rides this very uneasy tone uh, to many between um drama like heavy like dark dark drama and then having a comedic moment in the midst of something really really kind of fucked up um that to me worked for the most part I, it's what i kind of expected from martin mcdonough because that that is how his other films are largely and um i, I, I he kind of he positions an Irish filmmaker, and he positions this as sort of a, a dark, 
uh, a dark comedy bit of Americana and um, it was to, it was pretty fun for me and I liked it a lot. I'm not quite think I don't think it's quite gonna make my top 10 of the year or anything like that. Um, but it was a very solid film and uh, definitely one I'm, I'm eager to revisit down the line. So I'm giving that one three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, four out of five. Moving on to The Disaster Artist. This is from James Franco, who's playing Tommy Wiseau. If you haven't seen The Room, you should really see The Room if you're a cinephile. If you're listening to this in any way, shape, or form, you're, I'm assuming you're some kind of tremendous movie fan. So if you haven't seen The Room, you're definitely missing out. I'm actually currently listening to the audiobook of The Disaster Artist which so far seems pretty spot on with the film adaptation. And uh, James Franco is really strong here as Tommy Wiseau, this uh, mysterious, uh, aspiring actor who just decides to make his own movie, writes a script in a short amount of time, and uh, and the resulting film ends up being essentially a disaster, as the title would imply, but uh, creatively a catastrophe and um, has basically gone down as one of the best, worst movies ever made. Uh, horrendous dialogue, a story that doesn't make sense, performances that are beyond comprehension, just really messy and uh, and kind of ridiculous. It's amazing that it costs apparently $6 million because of the way that the production was run by Mr. Wiseau. But what makes this film so interesting to me and what I think a lot of people... Uh, what, what the best, the big takeaway was for a lot of people coming out of the disaster artist is that it finds a way to both humanize Tommy Wiseau, but also sort of poke fun at him. Um, it pokes fun at him as uh, you know, sort of a, a a clown figure in a fashion, but it really humanizes him and tells and shows you where he's coming from. That his intention is pure. That he has a sort of uh, childlike naivety in a way for how he wants to make his dreams come true and that part of the story is inspiring i say all the time that you know i want to i'm a creator and i want to write things and and you know make things happen and other people are doing things around me and you know sometimes i think that their work is not necessarily as strong as it as it should be or or uh you know somewhat under par in some respect or another but Regardless, even with all that, he, Tommy Wiseau made this happen. He wanted to make this movie. It was his vision. He spared no expense with a mysterious fortune, fortune as you'll see in the film. And um, this film exists. You can own it on Blu-ray now. Is it great? Hell no. It's a fucking terrible bullshit movie that makes no sense. But it's fun to watch. Not in the way he intended. But... He made it. He wanted to make it, and he made it, and it exists. And that's why, with kind of off-the-wall ideas, like what The Room ended up being, uh, as opposed to the ode to Tennessee Williams that Wiseau was really intending, I gotta give them. I gotta give him props for that. It's why I gave some of Kevin Smith's most Kevin Smith's most recent movies, Tusk and Yoga Hosers. I gave them. I was a little lighter on them than I probably should have because he wanted to make this weird fucking movie about a guy that turns another guy into a walrus, and he made it happen. And it's a movie that exists. Is it for everyone? No, but it's out there because he made it. And you know, you gotta as much as the movie is. I'm mixed on Tusk for the most part. You gotta admire that kind of. Uh, determination and and uh, willpower to make um, what you see on the page come to life on screen and get other people to buy into your vision. 
So from that respect, I think the disaster artist is almost is is pretty inspiring. Um, it's also really funny, and James Franco has go figure great chemistry with Dave Franco, his brother who plays Greg Sestero, the author of the book that the movie's based on, and uh, the second lead essentially in the room itself. Uh, they were great in it together. I Dave Franco, I'm usually someone I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty blah on, but he was he was uh, very charismatic in here and had that sort of um, vanilla ness that Greg Sestero has, and that he's you know he's a blonde white guy and wanting to be an actor and has a little bit of a pretty boy uh, vibe to him, which Tommy Wiseau points out in the film, and I think that uh, you know it really comes together in a satisfying way. Now, now that I'm listening to the audiobook of The Disaster Artist, I have an even slightly better appreciation for the film itself. Um, so this rating may go up uh, over time. <clears throat> Excuse me, over time. But as of now, I think we're going to stick with 3.5 out of 5 for The Disaster Artist. Very fun movie, especially if you're familiar with The Room. I would definitely check it out. And um, probably going to be at least an Oscar nomination for Franco's performance, uh, James Franco's performance, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out since it is sort of an, an offbeat choice for that kind of thing. Uh, not quite the strong as something like Ed Wood, which to me is a superior film by a significant degree, but uh, in that very much in that same spirit. Moving into Lady Bird, this is the sole directorial debut for Greta Gerwig, who also wrote the screenplay here. And it focuses on a teenage girl, played by Saoirse Ronan, in Sacramento, who wants to move to the East Coast, somewhere like Connecticut or New York, to, um, to pursue you know an education, go to college there, and get away from her family. And it's all about, really, it's about her, the conflict between her and her mother, and uh, them trying to understand each other, and that that weird that weird state of being that is adolescence, and how it makes you how you how you feel like the world is is trying to hold you back, especially your parents. Like you feel like you're trying to strive for something, and that obstacles are being put in your way. Some of which are of your own imagination. Uh, most of which are the people around you pr- trying to protect you from certain things or have your best interest at heart, or dealing with their own realities that you really don't even see. And in that respect, you know, as someone who has parents, obviously, I, uh, I found that part of it very, uh, very powerful as someone who has a child now too, a little girl at home. It, uh, it hit me on that level. Uh, I thought the screenplay was very charming. Shersha Ronan is amazing as always. And definitely going to get a Best Actress nomination. If not a win, it'll be interesting to see. The Best Actress race has been kind of crazy this year with lots of contenders up there. And uh, I I think that the film's most likely going to... It's most likely to get a Best Original Screenplay. I've heard a lot of people talk about how the film feels very uh, resonant with them. You know, I've heard a lot of female critics talking about how it feels like it's their life brought to the screen and how... Um, you know, they have very similar relationships with their mothers and things like that. And there was an element of the film that I connected to that I, it does speak universally to uh, the high school teenage experience. Didn't hit, didn't connect with me on quite the same level as that. Um, obviously, I was never a teenage girl. And I always had, I still have 
pretty positive a relationship with my mom with my dad and so I don't I you know I don't connect to that on as closely a level as some people and I also heard a lot of pre you know pre-screening hype going into this movie about how amazing it is and how it's the best movie you know one of the best movies ever and it's you know had a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes and I do think it's a very strong movie and I liked it easily gave it well, I guess I'll just say my review or my rating. It's I easily gave it a four out of five. It's a very strong film. Will I like it more as time goes on? Possibly, probably, actually. Um, that tends to happen for me with movies that I have an elevated, elevated expectations for. Um, that I see them and I'm like, okay, well, this is this this is good, but this is not the best thing ever. Um, and that was my experience with Lady Bird. I did enjoy it quite a bit. Some of the elements of the story did feel relatively archetypal with the the high school teenage movie and um to me even though it had a ton of personality overall was a slightly less satisfying watch than something like the edge of 17 which i thought had uh was at least more fun to watch and uh captured a certain element of being a teenage girl and uh, all that that entails that uh, that was at least more slightly more entertaining for me, even though yes, Trisha Rona's performance is probably a little uh, a little better than Haley Steinfeld's, and certainly Laurie Metcalf's performance in Lady Bird is probably one of the better performances in both films combined. Um, I think Lady Bird is one that has to grow on me, and once it once it comes out on Blu-ray, I'll definitely I'll definitely make an effort to revisit it, especially if it wins some Oscars and all of that. So that was Lady Bird. From Greta Gerwig. So now we're going to move into the last of the five movies that I wanted to talk about. Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. This is, of course, the second installment in the sequel trilogy following J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens from 2015, which, as you all know, I loved to that to death. And um, so, of course, with going on going into this film, there was a ton of questions. Who are Rey's parents? Who is Snoke? What's Luke been doing on this island, and why did he leave, and why won't he come back, and who, what are Porgs, and why should I care? So there was a lot of uh, a lot of hype going into this film, and especially with the you know this is the first movie that's been written and directed by the same person since George Lucas did it with Episode Three. Uh, you know, usually there's there are more hands in that pot, and I think that Ryan Johnson being a sort of singular filmmaker in a way and having a very particular stylistic touch if you've seen films like brick the brothers bloom and looper um you know sort of his sensibility that there's sort of a there's sort of a playfulness involved and uh especially with something like the brothers bloom where where expectations are subverted i mean for example in this film look at the first moment where luke gets that lightsaber and what happens with it um so I heard a lot of stuff from critics going into this film that it was the best Star Wars movie since Empire Strikes Back and all of that. So that got me excited. And after seeing the movie, because I saw it um, the opening night, the Thursday night before it came out on the fifth Friday the 15th, and um, the, the polarizing reaction from fans has been kind of crazy. Um, just within my own social circle, I've, I've seen a lot of people like, oh, I really hated that. And I don't know if it's that the film offers something so fresh that it doesn't feel like other Star Wars movies because in a way that's what I that's def- certainly to me what I feel is the film's strength 
Um, there's a lot of interesting development that goes on with the mythology. There are new elements to the force. There is um, things that play out that have we Star Wars fans have been wanting to see in some capacity on screen since the original trilogy. So I'm kind of in in some level flummoxed by the fact that people are still complaining. I mean, I don't. I, I think it's just the shock of how it, it it is kind of a little bit of a jarring shift to go from the force awakens which is nostalgia remember all this stuff it's all true we're home and all that to the last jedi where let the past die and kill it if you have to bury it and all that we're moving on time for old things to die and i i personally love that meta part of it J.J. Abrams had said with The Force Awakens that they needed to take a step back in order to move forward to sort of refresh the brand. I mean, Disney spent, what, $4 billion on Lucasfilm, and they needed to make sure that, um, kind of reboot the franchise in a way, which is why The Force Awakens has feels so closely like A New Hope, right down to the Death Star and the the older mentor who who's, who's, uh, dies in spectacular fashion. And uh, the spunky little droid who's on a mission on a desert planet trying to find a uh, young a young individual on a desert planet who's looking for adventure. I mean, there's a lot you can you can break that down, and people have already ad nauseum. But I think the Last Jedi was where the real challenge was going to be, and not coming across like an Empire Strikes Back clone, but actually propelling the story into new and interesting directions. And I thought that Ryan Johnson really pulled that off. There's a lot of, of uh, surprises here, which when was the last time we had this many surprises in a Star Wars movie? Everybody who saw The Force Awakens and picked up on the A New Hope similarities kind of had an idea where it was all going to go down. But what happens, what happens with Luke? What happens with Rey? What happens with Kylo Ren? In this film, the whole Snoke thing and the way that's take that's uh, dealt with, Carrie Fisher's final performance in ever, but in, as Princess Leia specifically, um, there's a lot of things in here that I think, satis in a satisfying way, close out a lot of the threads from the original trilogy, and open up tons of new doors. And the way that it ends almost makes you feel like it's the end of a trilogy. But that means that episode nine, we don't know exactly where episode nine is going to go, other than the development of the Kylo Ren Ray uh, rivalry and uh, and you know more of the First Order resistance thing. Uh, but other than that, we don't we don't really know where that's going to go, and that's exciting as hell to go into a third film of a trilogy and not know where it's going not know where it's going to go, not knowing that the next one has no way that it could be a Return of the Jedi. Um, knock off because they've already played that hand and moved past it and uh, I you know I loved every uh, not everything about this movie there are a few things like the scene with the milk uh, and you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the movie is a little off-putting I, I, I like I like it as an Easter egg to uh, to Luke Skywalker and his blue milk from a new hope that kind of thing and um, the dynamic there with him and Ray is is weird at first and then develops more as the film goes on but uh i've seen the film twice already and i loved it even more the second time because as i said sort of with ladybird uh first time seeing movies that i've heard a lot of positive things about 
is very it's kind of stressful for me sometimes because I worry that I'm going to be let down or I'm like, you know, not necessarily letting the story do its thing as much because I'm measuring up in my head. Oh, I don't know how this is going to go and sort of evaluating as the movie's going. And uh, with Star Wars, which is a franchise, my basically my essentially my favorite film franchise, it's it was even more so the fact that uh, you know I was like everyone else wondering where all this how how this was going to play out and where they were going to pick up from the Force Awakens with everything, and with that second viewing, I was able to go in already knowing what was going to happen, and just kind of roll with the experience and let the emotions of what's happening on screen with with Leia with uh, a certain surprise cameo middle way through the movie, um, with the, the ending and the way that the Luke story uh, concludes in this film. All of that stuff was was much more, hit me much more emotionally this time, now that I didn't have the pressure of, oh man, I don't, hope, I don't know where this is going to go, what if they jack, what if they jack it up? Uh, so I, I liked it a lot more. I think a lot of people have uh, you know speculated this, and I think that part of why so many fans have issues with it is that there is a lot of uh, diversity going on in this film. And I know that some people are, some people have latent issues with the fact that women and people of color are sort of rising in prominence in this franchise. Um, You know, I think that's probably a small percentage of fans, but I think that is probably an element of it as well as, like I said, um, the element of surprise and taking in new directions and sort of sweeping away the old elements of the franchise in order to in order to put an end to the Skywalker saga part of things. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into all of that, but you can very much feel that part of this franchise sort of winding down, and that Episode Nine could, in many ways conclude the nine-part story of the Skywalkers, Anakin, Luke, and, uh, spoilers, I guess, Kylo Ren, and the, the gen- this, those three generations, and um, ultimately where that leads the galaxy, and, uh, you know, open up for Ryan Johnson's planned uh, trilogy, which we have no idea what it's going to be about, so I'm excited to see that. I really loved The Last Jedi. Is it a perfect movie? No, I have issues a little bit. Some of the Canto Bite stuff... Um, with Rose and Finn is a little, feels a little bit overextended and a little bit too tangentially related to things. Uh, also Benicio del Toro performance is a little bit jarring. He sounds, feels to me very much like he's playing the hobo from Polar Express at times with a stutter though. And, uh, his character I could have kind of done without, or at least played it differently. Plus it felt like a, a little bit too much like stunt casting. I thought Mark Hamill was tremendous and the best performance in the film. Adam Driver is one of the best movie villains of the last decade easily. And I think, and I wrote an article about this for Cheat Sheet, I believe, that pissed some people off. I think uh, that his character, if you go with Force Awakens versus A New Hope, that just those two films, I think he's already more complicated, more complex, more fascinating than Vader was in that initial first film because it's just a dark figure in a mask walking around ominously. And, and of course, that was part of why he became such an iconic villain. But I think Kylo Ren has a whole different element to him that is interesting, especially with the meta factor of that he wants to, he essentially wants to be Darth Vader and that he's basically a Darth Vader cosplayer in some ways, especially in The Force Awakens. And of course, that it comes to sort of an abrupt end early on in this film. Um, 
But the fact that these movies are about... The first one is about restarting the franchise and getting things back on top and making sure that people still love Star Wars. And this one is about, all right, now we're transitioning out of that. It's it's fascinating for me to see what this uh, episode nine is going to be with J.J. Abrams coming back. If he's going to retcon any of the stuff that Ryan Johnson uh, sort of switched on on The Force Awakens and where this is going to go. Um, is The Last Jedi my favorite film of the year? possibly probably uh i'm right now it's hard for me to ever go to five uh, right out the gate five out of five but this is easily a 4.5 out of five and for those of you wondering i would rank it especially i was waiting for after my second viewing to to sort of confirm this um i would rank it right after a new hope or well i'd rank it after number one empire strikes back still number two a new hope number three um the last jedi number four force awakens so it edges out the its predecessor by a little bit just because uh i loved the surprising directions it went the twists and all that i really enjoyed that a lot uh and having recently watched the brothers bloom for the first time i could see a lot of of uh ryan johnson's uh dna from that earlier movie kind of carry on to this as far as the the way his uh finales are structured and um Sort of the way some of his characters are, are drawn out. Um, but The Last Jedi was a tremendous triumph for me. I'm one of the people constantly posting on my personal Facebook page being like, yeah, that's right, 700 million worldwide, 800 million, wherever we're at now. Uh, it's not going to make this amount of money as The Force Awakens, of course, because I don't think any mo movie will for a while, probably until, well, until May when Infinity War comes out. Maybe that'll do it. Um, but the second movie in a trilogy like this is not usually going to do that. The Empire Strikes Back and Attack of the Clones are both the lowest grossing of those trilogies. And I think that's probably going to be the case with The Last Jedi. It'll be interesting to see in Episode Nine if uh, the grosses go down even further because of the fans that are pissed off about things. Some of them don't come back. I kind of find that hard to, hard to believe just because this the ridiculous petition that's out there to uh, strike The Last Jedi from canon. It seems so ill-conceived and such a small portion of the audience when all is said and done. I mean, we're talking about, what, 220 million this made opening weekend and, like, oh, a few hundred, couple hundred thousand signatures on this thing. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, they're, they're really hurting. Disney's really hurting if you, if you guys don't see the movies and the rest of the billions of people across the country and the world... Uh, are all about the last Jedi, so it's it's weird to me to see this this the divisiveness um, between the fans and the critics. It's I mean everything the 2017 it it feels like a way to end 2017 with a movie that's super divisive like this, and uh, it, it that's just kind of been the the theme of this year in general. So on that note, 2017 go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's been kind of a crazy year. The news cycle has been exhausting um no matter where you are politically it, it's been it's been a mess all over the place people fighting over things and all these tragedies in the news and and all that um you know so let, let's hope there's something great happening in 2018 let's hope for uh things to to continue to improve positive attitude going into the new year i'm all about that uh already working on my air quotes resolutions Whatever that means anyway. Pretty much I'm all about constant self-improvement of my life, my situation, my family and stuff. 
And, uh, you know, I, I hope the best for you, all, all of you listening and your families. And uh, what are you hoping to accomplish in 2018? Or what movies are you, since this is a film podcast after all, what movies are you most looking forward to next year? I have a feeling Infinity War is probably high up there for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of movie fans who are into the the uh, big blockbuster stuff, the genre fair. But what else is there? What else? Tell, tell, tell me what you want to hear me talk about next year. It could be anything from Infinity War to Alex Garland's Annihilation, which I'm really looking forward to, to, oh man, I don't even remember. I'm not even really paying attention to 2018. I'm trying to catch up with 2017 movies that I haven't seen yet. As for this week, that's it for now. You can rate and review us on iTunes if you'd be so kind. We're also on Stitcher and we're on Spotify. That's a brand new thing since the last episode. You can find me, Robert Yanis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at crookedtable.com. I promise you, you will have written reviews and videos coming very soon on on the regular. This is one of my air quote resolutions. Uh, Next episode, I'm going to try and get away from promising what episodes are going to be. But the next episode, I have a few ideas for things. uh, But we'll be back soon, preferably in less than a week to uh to with the next episode and trying to keep some kind of a pattern going on until then i've been rob i appreciate your patience with this podcast and the gaps in between as you know this is not my full-time gig this is uh this is a uh hobby slash side hustle um just to kind of a venue for me to speak my mind on on films that i love so much and uh trying to get a discussion going with you guys so again i've been rob we'll catch you around the table next week Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.